What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, first, some quick reflections on events from the weekend, but we will spend the bulk of our time talking about a new book published in English by the Palestinian youth movement that was smuggled out of an Israeli prison one page at a time. Our guest would be Danya Al-Saleh, a member of the Palestinian youth movement based in Seattle and editor of the English translation of the book, The Trinity of Fundamentals. Good morning, Danya. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Dania, anyone following the genocide in Palestine has certainly heard the name of your organization, Palestinian Youth Movement, or PYM. You all are certainly not new to the scene or this work. Wondering if we can start off with you talking a little bit about PYM, its origins, and its work in this current moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, So the Palestinian Youth Movement is a transnational grassroots organization of Palestinian Arab youth. Um, We have chapters in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Um, we for we first formed in um, the aftermath of uh, o- the Oslo Accords, which for um, Palestinians and diaspora it meant that we were very much severed from the ability to to be political agents and and to secure the right to return to our homeland. So that the vision and purpose of the Palestinian youth movement is to mobilize Palestinian Arab youth in the diaspora who who um, have been severed for these kind of political reasons, um, with the goal of strengthening our presence and um, assuming responsibility in the struggle. Um, and yeah, so we've been since uh, the war on Gaza, we've been very much mobilizing um, day in, day out across the country, um, uh, across Canada, and also in Britain. Um, in we co-organized a national march on November fourth in um, Washington D.C. and um, from there announced a national, an international shut it down campaign. Um, and since then, have been um, organizing um, week after week. Um, to end the genocide on um, Gaza. I always start these Mondays, Dania, with reflections from my guests on the latest numbers. According to the Ministry of Health, uh, as of today, 27,947 Palestinians have been murdered in Gaza, 390 in the West Bank, 12,150 of those are children, almost 70,000 injured with no medical infrastructure to support them. Your reaction to those numbers? I mean, uh, the numbers keep going up. Um, It's unbearable. Uh, It's it's unbearable watching. This morning, we're waking up to the news of another massacre, and um, this time on Rafah, um, which is in southern Gaza. Um, It's Gaza's southernmost city that borders Egypt. And at this point, we have now well, about like 1.2 million Palestinians that are displaced to Rafah, told that this would be a safe haven. So now we're having two thirds of the population of the Strip sheltering there in the city um, with nowhere else to go. Um, and Prime Minister Netanyahu has declared intent to initiate a ground invasion, which would be uh, 
make the situation even more catastrophic than it obviously has been. There's nowhere else for Palestinians to go, and it's clear that this is this has been the intent from the beginning, and um, it's it's even more clear now that the intent is to um, continue this project of ethnically cleansing Palestinians from Gaza and by and pushing them into into the Sinai, essentially. You segued to exactly where I wanted to go go next, uh, which is Rafa, um, which straddles, as you mentioned, the Gaza-Egyptian border. Uh, Israel's, this is in air quotes, justification is saying there are more Hamas tunnels there um, and that they are planning for a massive ground intensive on top of the bombings that are happening there daily. Um, Israel claimed that it would evacuate Palestinians first, but to your point, even if that was true, there's nowhere left for them to go, correct? Yes. So, I mean, it's clear the plan, the, the it's, it's clear the plan is to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from Gaza. They, the, the government has proposed different plans for this, and the plan is to push Palestinians into Egypt. Yeah. Well, Egypt, though, has lined the border at this point with tanks to prevent Palestinians from being pushed across their border. I, I've been a little frustrated. Uh, I can't imagine how you feel in terms of Egypt's reaction. What role should they play in this moment? And how much more catastrophic is it if Israel is bombing Palestinians into Egypt and Egypt is using tanks to push them back? I mean, if Israel, if the the bigger, the important question I think in this in this situation to ask is like, if Israel were was really serious about making sure that Palestinians were kept safe, they would actually set up a camp inside of inside of um, occupied Palestine inside of. Uh, 1948 territories, but the 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 truth is they don't want Palestinians to be in Palestine. They don't want Palest Palestinians to resettle. That would guarantee their return. Um, the the majority of Palestinians in Gaza are actually displaced refugees from surrounding villages and cities around Gaza. So this idea, um, this is kind of like the idea from the beginning that has been pushed by the Israeli government that just put Palestinians in, in the Sinai. And Palestinians, we've seen this time and time again from, from the 1948, the Nakba, which we call the catastrophe to the present, that the goal is to push Palestinians out of Palestine. And this is why, as Palestinians, like we see, we see this for what it is. Final question before we move on to talking about the book, Danya. People have been in U.S. streets, Canadian streets, European streets, by the tens of <coughs> excuse me, by the tens of thousands for months now. Uh, in terms of the U.S., we see no sign of Biden or any other Democrats budging. What do you think needs to happen? And your response to Biden saying in one of his addresses last week that he wished there was something he could do to stop this. I mean, this has clearly been from the beginning, a, not just a U.S. greenlit war, but a a U.S. backed war on the Pal Palestinian people. And by backed, I mean like material support and weapons, funding. Um, and the the fact is, the majority of Americans actually do want to see a ceasefire, cessation of hostilities. Um, the and and Biden and the and 
the bulk of the Democratic Party are refusing to to hear to hear this and listen to this and and uphold this. Um, and we're going to continue. I mean, as PYM, we're going to continue pushing um, pushing around this, pushing around the, the, our demands, which are um, ceasefire now, um, lifting the siege on Gaza, which has been a seventeen year siege, uh, meaning that uh, like land, air. Um, and by and see, there's blockade of of control for Palestinians to access food, water, all the kinds of things that like humans need to survive. Um, the freeing of of Palestinian prisoners. There are thousands of Palestinian Palestinian prisoners that are held in administrative detention, which means they're held without um, any charge or trial. They're just um, like. Uh, essentially like kidnapped out of their homes and then the end of the occupation. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Dania Al-Saleh, member of the Palestinian Youth Movement based in Seattle and an editor of the English translation of the book, The Trinity of Fundamentals. All right, let's move on to why we have you on this morning. Who is Wassam Rafidi? Um, Wassam Rafidi is the author of the Trinity of Fundamentals. Um, he is, um, in terms of uh, his recent work, he's actually a retired researcher and lecturer. He was formerly um, in the Department of Social Sciences at Bethlehem University in Palestine, and he's also worked as a part-time lecturer at Birzeit University. Um, he has written many things, including uh, um, the Trinity of Fundamentals, which I'm here to talk about today, which is actually about his um, personal, so it's a fictionalized account of his own experience um, uh, going into hiding um, for nine years between um, 1982 and 1991 um, to organize against the Israeli occupation. Um, And he wrote the novel actually after he was captured in prison in 1993. Give us a synopsis of the book, please. Yeah, definitely. Um, So um, the Trinity of Fundamentals is a story of, like I said, it's a fictionalized account of the author's own experience. Um, The main main character, the protagonist, his name is Kenan. He's a 22-year-old young man who um, makes the decision to go into hiding, um, basically go um, undertake a clandestine experience um, to resist the Israeli occupation. But it's essentially a story that's a it's a very human story. It's a story about um, all the like the kind of inner struggle, the sacrifices that he made, his dreams and desires over these nine years. Um, and so, like between these nine years in hiding, we have we get to learn the story of revolution of like internal debates that he has of worries and happiness um and it's fundamentally um i would say it's a revolutionary story but it doesn't romanticize revolutionary struggle um and so through this personal experience that he undertakes it also is this like treasure trove actually of um, learning about palestinian history and major historical events that are both actually like um, local to Palestine, they're regional to the broader Middle East and global. So um, it gives really great personal insight into um, 
the first Intifada of 1987 and the first Gulf War. Um, it's a really powerful story for many reasons. Um, one of, but one of them I would say is that we get to learn Palestinian history of struggle and resistance through a novel, which is quite rare to have in English. Why do you think, or I'm wondering if he has spoken about why he chose to do a fictional account based on his life instead of making it purely autobiographical? Yeah, that's a, Excuse me. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so basically, he wrote this, I mentioned he wrote this story um, in uh, prison, um, and he wrote, he started writing it, so he was, he was captured in 91, he started writing it in 93, um, and basically his decision to write it, he was encouraged by um, co comrades of his um, to write about his experience. They knew about him, they knew about his experience, and they, they encouraged him to write about it. But the thing is, um, like, it's a clandestine secret experience. So, like, you can imagine, um, like, there, there's aspects of that story that shouldn't or cannot be told. Um, and so that's one of the reasons he decided to write it in a fictionalized way. So it's not pure, all, not everything in the story is true, or, and not every, not every character is a real character. They're like, um, compositions of characters, this kind of thing. So it's an, it's an, uh, it allowed him to write about his experience and without, um, sharing like sensitive information. He wrote this in the 1990s, which also was a time, uh, an intensive time of prisoner organizing in Palestine. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so he, yes, um, he wrote this in the nineties. Um, this is a time of like, he wrote this in, a, in the nineties in prison. And in many ways, it's like the result of um, the organization and wins of the Palestinian prisoners movement. So like basic things um, in the prison system, like access to um, education, access to like basic material, like materials, like paper, all, all these kinds of things, um, visitation rights, um were highly restricted so like in many ways the period he was writing it was was in this in this period in this period and so he had the only way it was possible for him to actually write it was through the support of the prisoners movement um so like just as an example um he had to write the novel at night like he stayed up all night writing it um um, and fellow prisoners would watch out to make sure that he could write it without their without um, what he was writing being um, taken away from him by prison guards. Um, there would be constant searches of prison cells for like things that were considered that they that they shouldn't they weren't allowed to have like things like cups, you know, just like basic basic necessities. But essentially. Um, the prisoners movement had a system that they called, they call like kind of tongue in cheek, the fax system, which is a system of like wrapping up um, pieces of paper and plastic and dough and then passing it between between sections. So as he was writing it, um, fellow prisoners would, would do that for him. Um, and then eventually, actually, he had completed it. Um, it had been circulating um, through the prison um, through this, the fax system, and it was eventually um, intercepted by prison guards. 
So he thought he actually had lost it. Um, and it was, I, it was about, he, he got released. I, I'm forgetting the date. He got released in, um, 94, I believe. And then he, but then he got, um, rearrested under administrative detention, um, about 50 days later. And he was arrested again for f four years. He thought he, he thought he had lost the novel and he, he was kind of under the, he decided he couldn't rewrite it. He couldn't make himself rewrite that experience, like the kind of passion and the, the story, like he, he just couldn't recapture it. Um, and he actually found out um, uh, four years later after having written it, um, that he saw it on um, a list of prisoners curriculum. And um, he was able to get it because other prisoners actually um, transferred it from another prison uh, in 54 capsules, which they ingested. So it was essentially like brought back, brought back to him it, through the intestines of four other prisoners. Um, and he finally had his no novel back. He saw that it was actually um, the the novel he had written and and it was retranscribed it was it had been transcribed back in 93 by a prisoner who um loved the story so much that he decided to hand transcribe it and like protected it so eventually it was smuggled out he made the decision he wasam made the decision that he wanted to publish it and he sm smuggled it out himself in um, 52 capsules so it's the, the story of the novel is essentially a story of the prisoner's struggle um, and the struggle to like access basic rights, including the ability to just like write literature um, and share it. I'm going to ask you to restate uh, a little bit of what you just said, because I, I just think like hammering home this point, this was handwritten one page at a time and smuggled out uh, in that fashion. Uh, and shared among the prisoners in something that was referred to as a fax. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing story. Um, and I think, like, one thing just to, I just want to say really quick before, um, like, re-explaining this, because it is quite, like, complicated or difficult to un to understand. Um, but the thing for us in the in the PYM that we really realized working on this project is that this text is so special and revolutionary, not just because it's content, but actually because of um, the organizational effort undertaken by prisoners to produce it and, and circulate it, both within the prison system and outside of it. So um, yes, like this, it's this thing called the fact system, which is like a, I would say kind of like a tongue in cheek um, play on words. It's essentially a system of wrapping up um, uh, writing pieces of paper tight and plastic and then encapsulating that in pieces of dough. And then there's specific people who are partic maybe particularly good at their aim and throwing things and they'll throw um, uh, information across um, sections of cells. And so this novel um, made its way not just across sections of cells, but but actually like um, across um, entire um, prisons, like across across in between prisons. And the way that happened was through 
um, not the fax system, but through actual capsules, which prisoners would ingest um, to transfer to um, another prison. In the case of Wissam, he got um, his own novel out eventually, um, 54 capsules, which he um, put in his clothing and was able to actually like um, smuggle it out of the prison um, partially that way. You mentioned that there was indeed a point in time where the book was intercepted by a guard. Can you tell that story? Um, yeah, so that was back. Um, so I, I mentioned he wrote the novel in 1993. He wrote it in Naqab prison. Um, and so I, so um, he had written it. It took him four months to write it. it he finally decided it was ready to share. Um, it was being circulated through the fax system in Naqab prison. And it was just one um, uh, um, inspection um, on um one of the cells where a person who was responsible for um for the i guess the fax person um missed and it was intercepted by a guard um and so he thought it was at the time back in 93 he thought it was completely lost um and um he even when he got released from um because i mentioned he was released um for about like 50 days um in um 1994 when he was released one of the the like the head of the prison kind of joked with him like oh we're so happy that we have such an educated person um in the prison like you such as yourself so there there was kind of this like teasing of the fact that um they had kept you know taken the novel from him and kind of suggesting like kind of mocking him a little bit so yeah that's the story of how it was captured but luckily um in that process somebody uh, one of his comrades in the prison was so moved by the story that he actually hand transcribed it himself word like comma by comma you know to that level where it was um, unknown, unknown to Wissam actually um, saved. Danya, you are one of the translator, translators of this book, uh, editor of this book into English. What was it like for you to have your hands on this kind of sacred material? I mean, I have to emphasize, like I was one person of 14 um, members of PYM who were involved in this process. Um, so it was where as the PYM, I cannot um, uh, express how proud we as an organization are to be even just a small part of this story of this novel and, and part of the story of like bringing it to broader audiences. So we were, I'm one of 14. Um, it was a, um, collective process for us of translating this novel. And we, we really consider this a political, um, like translation, this, this project to be a, a political task of, um, of the PYM, which we understand part of our, our work is bridging this gap that we have in the diaspora due to exile and across generations. Um, and so like by gap, I mean, language, geography, access, exposure, and like even generational. I think for many of us, 
it was very, very um, detail-oriented work. We spent hours, we met weekly for hours at a time. Um, for me, I know this novel like in and out and I still continue to learn from it. I feel like increasingly now I'm learning from it in this context of this genocide. Like what, what does it mean to be, um, like we talk about, um, Palestinians will talk about Samud or steadfastness. And for me, this is a story, the story of Kenan of the main character is a story of steadfastness of resilience. And then it's, when you think about it in relation to the story of how we even have it in our hands, it's like even more significant. Um, so yeah, for me personally, I'm extremely proud to be connected to this, but I'm proud that the way that we went about this pro this process of translating was a like a collective and political project, which I, I think as far as we know, we don't know of any other translation, English translation, where it's like, uh, done by an organization and in the case of Palestinian lit literature 14 um, young Palestinians in diaspora working on a project like this so for that reason as well we're we're really proud well we are very grateful uh, I do a lot of book interviews I can promise you this is the first time uh, that I've talked about a book that was published, translated, edited in this way. Danya, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Danya Al-Saleh is a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement based in Seattle and an editor of the English translation of the book, The Trinity of Fundamentals. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Bye.